in the early stage of overlending, it feels good. So you get this euphoria that just leads to accelerating what you're doing. So if, if growing loans this much brings this much good news, let's just do more. And then you get to that tipping point. I'm a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, are you in debt? Well, you may not know it, but you are. In Canada, uh, it's been estimated that the public debt equates to about $60,000 for every man, woman, and child, even people who are unborn. But what isn't talked about enough in the United States and Canada is the threat that's posed by private debt. So today we have on the show someone who is an expert in this, who has, was a, a longtime high-level banker, an economist, and author. His name is Richard Vig. He's written several books on this topic. So hopefully we're going to learn a lot about debt today and uh, some solutions to it, but also uh, some of the dangers and uh, things that we can do, things within our control that we can perhaps change to decrease the threat of, uh, of incurring excessive private debt. Welcome to the show today, Richard. It's great to have you on. It's such a privilege to be here. Thank you. All right. So uh, just a little bit about uh, Richard. Um, he is the author of The Paradox of Debt and some other books that we're going to talk about. Uh, in that book, he presents a, a new view of macroeconomics. Uh, it was just released this past July. He's also the author of The Case for a, De a Debt Jubilee, which sounds awfully good. Uh, that's a policy exploration of debt relief. Uh, and he also has done an illustrated business history of the United States uh, and uh, a brief history of doom, which is uh, an interesting book that I just read, uh, which is a, a chronicle of the world's major financial crisis and is a very, very fascinating history, a different take on history. Uh, that helped me to understand some of the other trends, political trends and things like that uh, through the lens of economics. He's also uh, written a book called The Next Economic Disaster, which was written, I think, about, uh, about eight or nine years ago, but he accurately predicted the situation that we have today. So obviously a very smart, very astute observer of economic matters. He's also very involved in a company called uh, Gabriel Investments, um, and has a whole wealth of history as a CEO and a chairman of various boards uh, within the realm of banking and economics. So before we dive into a discussion of his books and, and some interesting topics, as we always do, we're going to look at some framing aphorisms. Uh, because we have somebody who is uh, an expert in economics, uh, these, uh, <laughs> these are from some noteworthy economists. I know that Richard will be well familiar with these gentlemen. Uh, one is the, the late Milton Friedman, former Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, who once wrote that nobody spends uh, somebody else's money as, as wisely as he spends his own. Um, next, the Thomas Sowell, who, in my opinion, is one of the world's greatest living intellectuals, public intellectuals, who wrote, it is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Uh, another one going a little bit deeper into the archives uh, is from uh, George Washington, the first president of the United States, 
who in his farewell address in 1796 said, cultivate peace and harmony with all. That's from Richard's own website. And finally, a quotation from our guest today, uh, who wrote, those who champion the trickle-down theory of economics are correct, except for one detail, it is debt that has been trickling down and not wealth. So Richard, thanks again for being on the program. Uh, Why don't we start with talking about this concept of private debt? Because Uh, As I mentioned off the top of the show, in both in Canada and the United States and elsewhere in the world, we always hear about public debt, rising public debt, particularly in the aftermath of COVID, which you wrote about in one of your books. Uh, But this concept of private debt and the threat that it poses uh, is not talked about enough. Do you want to explain what that threat is and, and why it's not talked about enough? Well, you're exactly right. There's more private debt in the world then there is public debt. In the United States, it's about $40 trillion worth of private debt. That's household debt and business debt versus about 31, 32 trillion in government debt. And if you look at it globally, there's about 150 trillion in private sector debt as compared to about 90 trillion. Wow, that's a lot, of ze- a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros, but much bigger zeros on private debt. and. As we saw in 2008, it was private sector debt that bought, brought our troubles. Yeah. In 2002 in the U.S., mortgages were at $5 trillion. By 2007, they were at $10 trillion. And that was millions of mortgages made to folks that didn't have income, jobs, assets sufficient to support those mortgages. So it's really private sector debt that has gotten us into trouble in the major financial crises in history. That's the area we should be studying the hardest. Right. And, you know, you mentioned in in one of your books, I believe it's the the next economic disaster, that you were actually working in the banking industry back in those days, in the private banking industry, and you were so horrified by this. That was one of the reasons why why you left. You, and uh, you, you also ac- accurately predicted the explosion of debt that occurred subsequent to that. Um, but you also, in another one of your books, you talk about a brief history of doom. Uh, and that in there, you talk about really the historical uh, thread that runs through many different financial and political collapses in history over the past 200 years. And they're all linked to private debt. Do you want to talk about that book a little bit? Because it sort of sets up your most recent book that you just published. Well, thank you. Yeah, we we made the contention that private debt had brought the global financial crises and we kept getting pushback. And, you know, it seemed clear to us. So we said, what the heck, let's look at the whole story. And we got the consensus 43 biggest financial crises in world history over the last 200 years in the top six countries in the world. And we looked at each and every one of them reconstructing the private sector debt. This would be Austria in 1873. This is London in 1825. This is the Great Depression that began with the collapse in 1929. We looked at every single one of them and without fail and without exception, It was runaway, irresponsible private sector lending that brought way too many houses or office buildings or railroads 
and the economy collapsed with that overcapacity in banks that made those loans fail. So we really, we really cemented our thesis by looking exhaustively at all the crises in world history. One of the things you discovered that to me was very counterintuitive is, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom that's talked about in the media and by politicians about, you know, rising public debt. But when you went in and you did your deep analysis of the arithmetic, you actually found that oftentimes increasing public debt actually benefits households. Could you explain how that occurs? Well, you're exactly right. And this is something we dive into very deeply in the new book. But when government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It ends up in the checking accounts of households. So in the three years of the pandemic, 20 through 22, when we had all in the U.S., we had all those $1,400 check and $1,200 check rescue relief packages out of Congress, the government's debt increased by $8 trillion. But private sector wealth increased by $30 trillion. The $8 trillion the government spent ends up in the checking accounts of households. And the flood of money that came into the economy pushed real estate and stock values up by another $20 trillion. Mm. So it's a fairly profound concept. And it wasn't just the pandemic. That's been true throughout history. And let me just give you one more number here. In 1980 in the U.S., government debt plus private debt was 125% of GDP. Today, it's 260% of GDP. Incredible. Private sector net worth in 1980 was 350% of GDP. Today, it's 600% of GDP. Debt creates wealth. And that's something people don't think about. It can right. get you in trouble, but in aggregate, it brings wealth. It creates wealth. The uh, One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, um, and this goes back to uh, your previous book, The Next Economic Disaster. Um, how was it that you were able to predict what was coming? I mean, leaving COVID aside, it wasn't the, the economic collapse that we suffered, that we suffered over the past few years, uh, if we can call it that recession or depression or whatever people call it, economic slowdown, it happened. And in your book, which was written about eight or nine years ago, you predicted it was going to happen. Were you able to predict that based upon the research that you've done, talking about, you know, the, the work that you did on the brief history of doom, uh, because it seemed to me it was quite pre prescient, almost prophetic. <laughs> you sort of saw this train coming down the tracks, but you know, most people, I don't think would have foreseen the coming economic disaster, you know, eight or nine years ago, the way you did it. How, how were you able to tell that this was coming? Well, we saw the pattern repeat itself over and over again. And one of the most satisfying mo moments that I had in all of this, this would have been 2014. And I was invited down to DC to debate a bunch of experts on China. And they were all in the camp that China was a juggernaut that could not be stopped. Right. It was going to overtake the United States. China was different. This time it's different. So it was four or five of those folks and me. And, you know, especially back then, I didn't have even a fraction of the credentials of those folks did. So I was just making the point 
and showing the numbers. And you know, we concluded in a very unsatisfying way. Three months later, the, the Chinese stock market collapsed by 50%. Right. So yeah, I've never had a moment that worked out, you know, that much in accordance with my predictions. So, but it's a pattern that's well established. You, you know, this is, I'm glad that you brought up this China thing. This is one of the topics I wanted to talk to you about because when I, when I researched you and some of the periodicals that you've written, there's one called China's Generation of Demise, Why China's Shrinking Population Both Reflects and Portends Far Deeper Problems. I think many people uh, throughout, the throughout the world, and especially in the West, um, are very concerned about the threat that China poses. But you seem convinced that uh, built within the Chinese culture and economy are the seeds of their own destruction. You want to maybe elaborate on that and why you think that, that China has, a, is, that has this generation of demise? Is it related to, to private debt? Absolutely. China's had the greatest growth in private debt of any country in the history of the world. Wow. I believe like last Most, decade. We don't hear about that, do we, Richard? We, we never hear about this. Well, you know, you don't because most of our news is about America. You know, we've, yeah. we, I think it's the same four news stories all day, every day. <laughs> but, but if you go a little deeper, if you go to page two, you'll see things like Evergrande, which is um, the massive building company in China that failed last year and declared bankruptcy this year. And you'll read about Country Garden. We estimate that in China, the real estate companies have built as many as 100 million empty homes. Really? They're homes that have not been sold, are not occupied. Well, if you have that many extra homes, there's no need to build even more. So you, you just dig the hole deeper and deeper. In China's private sector debt, ours is not that good at 160 percent. Mm -hmm. There's 200 percent. Wow! And that's coming from nowhere in 1980, as you know. Yeah. So they're piling on private debt, and they're in uh, a very precarious place right now. Right. Um, the The interesting thing, uh, too, about uh, just talking in this context about private versus public debt. Um, you, you write that rising uh, uh, private sector debt leads to rising inequality, and you explain why, but you have some ideas about how to fix it. You want to explain about that a little bit? Well, most wealth in any country boils down to two assets, real estate and stock. So I would say something to 70 to 80% of all the aggregate household wealth in any country is going to be those two things. Now, the top 10% in the United States at any rate holds 65% of all the stocks and real estate in the country. The bottom 60%, that's six zero percent only hold 14, 14% of the stocks and bonds. So by mathematical definition, if Stocks and real estate go up, inequality widens. Right. Because the top guys are holding most of it. Right. And the other thing we try to show in our book is that increased debt drives the price of stocks and real estate up. Mm -hmm. So as debt increases, 
inequality widens by definition. Oh, interesting. Does that explain in part um, why we saw such an expansion of that, let's say that wealth gap uh, during, during and in the aftermath of COVID? We heard about these incredible profits that were earned by many companies uh, during COVID. Is that, is that part of it, this taking on of, of additional debt actually uh, widens the, the income gap? That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And absolutely, inequality widened dramatically in COVID. You know, most folks got no benefit at all. The wealthiest got fairly massive benefits. But, you know, that was accelerated in COVID. But that's really been true throughout history. Right. And, and in, your, in one of your books that we talked about, uh, The Brief History of Doom, uh, you explain in some detail how uh, this economic gap, this e- economic gap um, that that is not limited just to the economic sphere. That has very serious ramifications for social cohesion, uh, you know, b- b- whether or not a country is, is at peace or at war, uh, you know, political divisions, uh, basically even, even things like marriages uh, and families, cohesion of marriages and families are impacted by this, right? So really, this, is, uh, this whole public debt thing uh, is sort of a, a, one of the seeds of, as you, as you put it in your book, doom, right? Well, you know, I, I, we mentioned this statistic earlier, but I'll say it again. Households in the U.S., private sector had debt of 35% of GDP in 1945. Today, it's 160%. So the average family is carrying five times more debt than they did two generations ago. That creates a lot of stress. Yeah. I went around the country and talked to folks about student debt as one example, I was really surprised that it wasn't just 20 and 30 year olds, it was 60 and 70 year olds. I talked to one very prominent politician, by the way, and I said, you know, I was surprised there's a lot of families where the husband and wife have not finished paying off their student debt and they're having to co-sign for their kids' student debt. And his response to me was, that's the situation I'm in. Oh, wow. It's pervasive. Yeah. And, you know, one of the questions that I think people are pondering, I certainly do, is, um, and, and this may seem obvious to you, but why is it that uh, the people who are, let, let's say, uh, providing a private debt as a product um, are so keen to have be, uh, us take on more and more of this private debt even though it's causing so much obvious harm? Is it just that they're purely, you know, materialistic and motivated by profit? Is, is that what it is? But it, I mean, there seems to be a real uh, incentive, a real goal to have uh, individual people take on this, this private debt. What, what's behind that in your view? Well, I was a bank president for a long time. So I have direct experience there. <laughs> and um, you, you don't, you don't think about the macroeconomic picture. If you're a computer salesperson, you're trying to sell more computers. Right. If you're a car salesperson, you're trying to sell more cars. If you're a bank, you're trying to sell more loans. And your end of year bonus and the earnings of the company and your stock price all relate to your growth. And I'll tell you, I was deeply in the industry as a bank president for over 30 years. 
I had no idea about the macroeconomic numbers I'm sharing with you today. You mentioned at the outset of the broadcast that folks generally don't spend enough time studying this. I can promise you within the banking industry, you study your own numbers ad infinitum. You don't study the macroeconomic numbers wow. that thoroughly. So putting out more loans is like trying to win the championship if you're a coach. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's what you do. Right, right. Uh, well, talking about your most recent book that was just released in July, it's called The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Um, it has uh, some good news hidden in there. It tells, it tells the, the facts, uh, but uh, you know, in part of it, it says, you know, when we talk about debt and its impact on our economy, we almost always mean government debt. However, this is only a small part of the picture, as you explain. Individuals, private firms, and households owe trillions. And these private debts are vital to understanding the economy. So what is the paradox of, of debt? Uh, that, that's one part. Maybe you've explained that a little bit so far. But what I'm really interested to know is what is this new path to prosperity without crisis? Well, an economy can't operate without debt. I think the deeper you get into the subject, the more pervasive you see debt being. Mm-hmm. You know, the local store that sells T-shirts and shoes incurs debt just to stock their shelves. If you took debt away from the economy, the economy would collapse. It's that important and it's that pervasive. Furthermore, economies cannot grow without growth in debt. So, you know, if you're a company and you want to buy and build a new factory, you use debt to do that. If you're an individual, you want to build a new home, you use debt to do that. So debt is the enabler for all the things we think of as economic progress. But at the very same time that is happening, the seeds are being planted for these problems. If you extend too much debt too quickly, you have the Great Depression or the 08 crisis. Right individual level, if you take on to debt, your ability to do the things you want to do, like send your kids to college or put an addition on the house, become out of reach. Right. You have no money. You're using all your money to service debt. You can't take vacations and do other things. So debt is both, the, debt's the creator and the destroyer. It does both things at the same time. Right. So uh, just by way of analogy, it's sort of like drinking. If you drink responsibly, it's something can, that can improve a meal and, and you know, be something that's part of conviviality and a social setting. But if you drink too much, you're a drunk and your life's in chaos. And that same sort of principle would seem to apply to debt. If it's managed and used responsibly, it can be a key to this new path to prosperity. But what you're writing about, what you're concerned about is, you know, maybe this this private debt situation is out of control in places like the United States and Canada. Analogy. You know, it's it's like so many things. The middle ground, moderation, is the key. Right. You know, we could have grown. You know, in the period of '02 to '07, we didn't have to put on five trillion more mortgage debt. If we'd have put on one to two trillion more mortgage debt, there would not have been a great financial <laughs> crisis. So it's it's moderating. And, you know, you ask about 
the path to prosperity. Well, one element of that is putting in the radar, the early detection mechanisms to be able to see mathematically when loans are growing too fast and to be able to pull back. So one of the keys to prosperity is just to not have a crisis in the first place. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be what uh, governments these days are into. It seems like everything's an emergency these days. Uh, is that everything goes to excess, right? Uh, you know, and when you were describing, uh, uh, debt, uh, I was sort of picturing in my mind's eye, Michael Douglas and, and, and wall street, you know, when he's playing Gordon Gecko and he says, greed is good. You remember that? <laughs> that Very seems definitely. to be the, pro that seems to be part of the problem with this private debt. It's very profitable for, for banks and for, and for companies that, uh, that, that provide these products to people. It's obviously very seductive for the consumer because obviously they want to have money, money that they have not yet earned. Uh, but there's a danger there, isn't it? It's inherent in that, that uh, if they don't manage that debt responsibly, take on too much all at once, or if it's the wrong kind of debt, you know, uh, if, if somebody who's living in a, in a single wide trailer goes out and tries to charge up a Ferrari, that's going to be a serious problem, right? Well, that's exactly right. You know, that you framed it any, what, compounds that problem is that in the early stage of over lending, it feels good. Right. There's euphoria, you know, in 2002 and 2003 and 2004, the economy was growing faster. Unemployment was improving. Incomes were going up. So you get this euphoria that just leads to accelerating what you're doing. So if, if growing loans this much brings this much good news, let's just do more. Right. And then you get to that tipping point. Yeah. And, and governments sort of, uh, uh, they, they get onto this train too, don't they? Because obviously they want to, they want to see an economy that's growing, right? They want to have uh, increased GDP. And, and this public, the, this private debt is almost like a shortcut, isn't it? Uh, they they want to have more money in in, in 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 some people's hands because that's that spending that consumption is going to drive the economy and so governments are complicit in this uh, in this uh, debt uh, crisis as well aren't they? They are and there's a lot of famous quotes in the run up to the 08 crisis of guys like Barney Frank, you know, applauding the fact that home home ownership percentages were going up that you know their mortgages were growing because to the politician too good economic news is helpful to them and the things they cherish which is re-election by the way so you know, they're always out there applauding new debt programs to grow this or grow that or help this or help that and quite often it's a problem instead of a benefit so let's take one example i'm curious to get your take on this um, there's been a lot of press in the United States recently about, uh, you know, forgiveness of student debt that you talked about. And, uh, and, and sometimes this is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for even just one household. Um, why would government, why would a government like Joe, Joe Biden and the Democrats want to forgive those loans on the face of it, that would seem to do harm to, to the lenders because they're, you know, they're obviously, they're not getting paid back. But is part of it that uh, they want to drive the economy? They want to people to to sort of have the reaction. Well, gee, I don't owe 
uh, I don't know the I don't know the Bank of America anymore. That two hundred thousand dollars student loan that got me through medical school. So now I can go out and spend more money on other things. Is that what's driving it, or is it something else behind that? The, those types of economic policies. I, I think you've portrayed it correctly. It's you know if you had a magic wand, which none of us have, of course, and you could forgive everybody's debt, not just student debt. But if we forgave all the mortgage debt and all the credit card debt and so forth and so on, and you had a magic wand to do that. So nobody on the other side of the transaction had to take a loss. That's a, that's a completely unrealistic scenario, but we've got a magic wand. Here. <laughs> if you did that, you would have an economic boom of incredible proportions. Because all of a sudden, everybody would be unburdened and free to spend more. And the idea of Jubilee, which is what that's referred to as, right. is an ancient idea. Ancient rulers used to like Hammurabi in Babylon and you know the kingdom of Israel and Egypt used to enact Jubilees because folks would get overburdened with debt and had to go so far as pledging their children as collateral. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you don't, you know, the Lord's prayer doesn't have forgiveness of debt reference for no reason. Right. This, this has been a, a pervasive problem ever since yeah. the beginning of civilization. It's ancient, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely ancient. However, you have to bring the concept of fairness to it. Right. And that's where it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. And the example I use is you have two people side by side. They're both 28 years old. One of them has taken an extra part-time job or two, scrimped and saved and paid off their, that person's student debt. The other person has waited as long as they could, paid the least they possibly could, and still has $100,000 of debt or whatever. These are two folks that at the beginning were identical. One was diligent, one wasn't. You come along the next day and you forgive all consumer or student debt. That's completely unfair to the person who was prudent. Right. They get nothing and the person that wasn't gets $100,000 worth of relief. Yeah. That's fundamentally unfair and that's why that kind of program can't and won't and shouldn't go through, even though it would have benefit economically. Mm -hmm. I think doing something, you know, one of the things that, you know, there's 43 million Americans that have student loans that are not yet paid off. So it's, it's not a small problem, right? But I'm sorry. One of the things that um, they have, that U S has done is allowed folks to do military service or Peace Corps service or take a government job. And after so many years, they'll get some relief of their debt. We put forward the idea of taking that further into the private sector and letting folks do 800 hours of community service to get some significant relief from their student debt. That that's not giving something away for free, but that is giving somebody some hope and a better path to getting out of debt. Right. And this is a part of what you talk about in uh, 
in the, in the book that you just wrote before your most recent one, The Case for Debt Jubilee, uh, which talks about, you know, the, the increase in debt as, as a result of uh, COVID-19 and how this debt has tripled, I think you said, since 1950. But what's encouraging about that book is that, that uh, you actually talk about some solutions, like the one you just described, that would involve, uh, let, let's say, novel creative ways of repaying debt, which also put equity, as it were, social equity, uh, you know, national equity back into the country, right? Because uh, if you're an American, you're a Canadian, you know, uh, you know what, what's, the, what's the old saying, you know, a high tide floats all boats. So if people are putting more of themselves, putting equity into the nation, um, that will have uh, repercussions, long-term repercussions for the economy, but also for the nation that might avoid the type of doom that you talk about in your other book, right? I think that's true. You know, we've got a lot of favorable feedback on this idea. People like the idea of community service. Why aren't politicians talking about it? I, I think this is a brilliant idea. <laughs> why aren't, you know, but why are politicians talking about it? It seems to me this is one of the best ideas I've, I've heard about how to reduce national debt and household debt. But what, why isn't anybody, what, why aren't there any politicians proposing this? Even, even Republicans or conservatives in the United States and Canada, I haven't heard anyone come up with this type of idea, which I, I think it makes a great deal of sense. Any, any ideas about why that's, that's not happening? Well, I spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C. and have for a long time. And Washington, D.C. is like this big funnel <laughs> where, you know, there's a million ideas that come in at the top. And there's like two or three pieces of legislation a year that come out <laughs> at the bottom. So the chances of one of your um, the million ideas making it through to actual legislation are very small. Right. These two books have just come out in the last couple of years. Hopefully, we'll continue to get traction. Yeah, but it is it is it is uh, like the sand, the grains of sand on the beach <laughs> when you're in Washington D.C. Well, it is very encouraging to know that there are some solutions to this debt crisis, and 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 you make it very clear in all of your books. This is a crisis that contains within it the seeds of doom, and we've got to start paying more attention to this, don't we? This this concept of ever-increasing private debt. We've got to start paying more attention to this and, and to dealing with, with this problem, don't we? That's, it's sort of something that's being swept under the carpet and suddenly there's a giant, a giant mound in the middle of the living room. That's, that's sort of the theme that runs through all of your books, isn't it? Yeah, the problem won't go away if we ignore it. You know, if our debt was 125% of GDP in 1980, it's 260% today. You know, in Japan, it's 400%. Right. You know, their economy is growing at a zero pace and whatever. It's not going to go away, you know, if we ignore it. Right. Um, but talking about solutions, uh, one of the pieces that you wrote uh, is entitled, Americans are so indebted that it's holding back the economy. And you mentioned three or four key reforms that could give room to breathe. You want to talk about those a little bit? I think people will be most interested in these. Well, we look at what's called the debt service ratio, and that's the amount of the interest in principal you have to pay as a percent of your disposable income. And that was close to 10% in the 1950s and 60s. And those were our two best growth decades 
since World War II. Richard, can I just stop you there for a sec? Why was it so low back then? Well, you know, one of the things, one of the things that happened to deleverage debt, there were two things that happened to deleverage debt. One of them was the Great Depression. Right. And, you know, a lot of debt got wiped out in the Great Depression yeah. and nobody could get a loan for a long time. Right. And we don't want to repeat that one. That was a we bad don't, one. I mean, that's, <laughs> if you're going to deleverage, that's not the way to do it. Right. And, and then we had World War II. Also the, not worth repeating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the t- two things you wouldn't want to have to live through again, but they were two things that were very beneficial for household balance sheets. Oh, I see. So we came out of that. I mean, you know, in the roaring 20s, private sector debt was very high. And that's one of the things that brought the Great Depression. Interesting. Two calamities that got it kind of Mm. back down. Yeah. Sorry, I sidetracked you there. You were talking about these four key reforms that you're you're suggesting that would give people room to breathe before I I asked you that uh, that follow-up question. Well, you're you're so kind. What I was saying was, you know, it was close to 10%, these debt service ratios. Today, it's close to 30%. That's a big that, increase, isn't it? That, that's a, that's, that's a, huge. Yeah. That's, a, you know, just, you know, think in your own personal life. If, you're, if you could cut your debt by two thirds, you know, it'd yeah. make a huge difference. And I think that's true for most folks. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of innovative ways, fair ways to give folks some relief. So we described the student student loan idea. Another idea we had was related to mortgages. Mm-hmm. There were 15 million mortgages that were underwater after the 08 crisis. That means Incredible. that the value of the home was, was 10% lower than the face value of the mortgage. It's a pretty troubling place to be. And a lot of folks that had made a lot of income in the boom or making less. So they now had the inability to service that mortgage as easily. And their debt was higher than the value of their home. So they couldn't sell their home and get out of the problem. We offer the idea of allowing the borrower at the borrower's option, not at the lender's option, to go to the lender and say, reduce my mortgage by some negotiated percentage, let's call it 25% or 50%, reduce my payments proportionately, and I will give you X percent of the gain on the house when it's sold eventually. So it's like a debt for equity swap. Right. And the one other thing you have to do there, in our opinion, is you have to, at the bank regulatory level, and I was a bank regulator. So at the bank regulatory level, you have to give the bank the dispensation to do that and spread their loss over a few years rather than having to take it all at once. Right. Or they're not going to be motivated to do this. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a win-win-win. The bank gets rid of a troubled debt. The individual gets reduction in payments and the you know the lender gets a future upside uh at the sale of the home it's kind of a debt for equity swap so uh we've we've talked a lot about debt uh uh, richard i'm curious to know one of the other things that people are worried about a lot right now 
uh, is inflation. And you do talk about this in your books. Uh, and you write that uh, our current inflation has been largely caused by global supply chain issues related to COVID and by supply disruptions in such commodities as oil, natural gas, and wheat brought on by the war in Ukraine. And you say that our current inflation trends have more to do with the war than with the Fed, with the Federal um, Bank, or, or, or sorry, Federal Reserve. Uh, and you say if history is any guide, inflation will decline as the special circumstances abate. Do you stand by that? Absolutely. You know, that's a proposition that's very testable. We've got a database now, we being anybody who wants to do this, of 47 countries that are the largest 47 where you have all the data you need. You've got government debt data, private debt data, money supply data, interest rate data, and inflation data going back 50 to 70 years. So it's a pretty simple matter to say, show me all the instances where money supply growth was high, because that's what everybody believes. High money supply growth brings inflation. Well, when you do that, you see that that happens a lot and it's very rarely followed by high inflation. It's, there's simply no evidence that high money supply growth or high government debt growth brings inflation. We can see every instance of inflation and examine what caused it. We get inflation when there's a war. And one of the reasons is all, you know, in Europe in World War I, you know, two thirds of the farm, farms were wiped out. We, we simply couldn't grow enough wheat. So what was left was much more expensive. And the U.S., by the way, had to import 20% of its crops to keep Europe from starving. We can see instances of inflation and we know why that happened. The great 70s inflation, and since you're in an oil production region, you'll know this data. But the 70s inflation was because the price of oil went from $3 a barrel in 1972 to $40 a barrel in 1979. That was because of the Yom Kippur War and the Iranian Revolution. Right. That's the equivalent as if the price of oil today went from 80 or 90 barrels dollars a barrel to 8 or 900 dollars a barrel. Wow. That was the level of the calamity. And the way it was resolved and again, since you're from oil country, you know this, is that price of oil had been regulated at the wellhead in the United States. So there was no incentive to produce more oil in the United States. So between Carter and Reagan, they deregulated the price of oil. The number of drilling rigs in the United States went from about 1,500 drilling rigs to 4,500 drilling rigs from 1977 to 1982. And the amount of oil produced in North America, including Canada, grew by 25% in that period. And what happened? Oil went from $39 a barrel to $10 a barrel. Uh -huh. And when that happened, which was 1986, because I was living in Texas, <laughs> you know, it all, that almost brought Texas <laughs> to its knees. Inflation went to 2%. Oh. It was not money supply. It was not high interest rates. 
It's the price, it's undersupply. And we have the same thing going on here. We just had a number, that inflation number that was a, a little bit higher this month versus the last 12 or 13 months. Because in the war, because Saudi Arabia and Russia jacked up the price of oil. Okay. Money, money monetary policy is not going to make Putin and, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia change their production runs. It's lies. I, I remember uh, reading um, one of uh, Milton Friedman's books where he, 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 he claimed, and you, you're probably aware of this uh, more aware than I am, he claimed that really uh, governments were the government spending was the culprit in inflation. The government's really caused inflation. And he said that governments like inflation because uh, what it does is it, it actually has an, the effect of, of, uh, of decreasing the amount of public debt, right? Because every dollar that you owe is worth less and therefore the public debt is reduced. Does that same dynamic apply to private debt? So I was a Milton Friedman devotee. <laughs> I was in my 20s. Right. He was kind of it, the, the it guy. Right. I can remember watching on PBS his series called Free to Choose. Oh, yeah. I, I've watched it too. It's great. Yeah. Which is, you know, was just so inspiring and so forth and so on. We've got really well over 40 years of data since he espoused his theories. And unfortunately, the data just contradicts the theories he put forward. Right. So for yeah. example, inflation doesn't cause government debt to go down. During that same 1973 to 1982 period that we just described, right. which we had you know, rampant inflation that reached 15%, the government debt ratio increased. So Friedman right. was just wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, I think I'm not sure that there was enough data in 1975 or 80 for me to develop the theories I've developed. I think we've had the most important period of economic history ever. And it's been all that's happened over the last 40 or 50 years that really constitute the body of, of my work is that study. Mm-hmm. So even though I still have enormous fondman, fondness for Friedman, he just wasn't right on certain, not everything, on certain things. Right. We're always learning and, and growing and refining our ideas, aren't we? I mean, certainly he's a giant of, of economics, but we stand on the shoulders of giants. We don't necessarily stand underneath them and, and hang on to their pant legs, as it were. Um, so uh, sort of bring the, these different ideas and your books uh, together. I'm curious to know, uh, you know, you've written this one book about the brief history of doom. And you've just described the period that we're going through as a really important period, maybe the most important period in recent economic history. Um, What do you think are the key things that need to happen, uh, both in the private sector and in terms of government, that are going to prevent uh, this from turning out to be, according to the annals of history, another period of doom for the West? Well, you know, we've touched on a couple of them. We need to put the monitoring mechanisms in place to prevent this, these irrational bursts. Right. And we have the technology to do that today, don't we? And we, we, we could easily do that. And by the way, one of the things that you know, folks generally aren't aware of is the Federal Reserve economists 
do not even use debt as a factor in their economic modeling. Really? That is shocking. At all. Wow. Period. <laughs> it's called the DSGE model. It's famous. It's pervasive. That's the reason that they were saying in 2007 that things were fine. Yeah. I know the Bank of Canada uses that same model, uh, but They're I did not all know. All Orthodox economists <laughs> use it. Yeah. And for, for those of us who are just regular old people, the idea that you wouldn't use debt is a little bit shocking. Yeah. So, you know, so we need to correct that mistake, begin monitoring debt, and we can prevent things like the Great Depression and the 08 crisis and the like. The second thing we need to do, we've already touched on, we need to come up with fair and creative ways to let folks work through their debt more successfully. Uh, I think the third thing we need to do is recognize the growing inequality and introduce ways for people to increase their income. And to me, one of the most uh, glaringly obvious things out there is the fact that in the U.S., we've got millions of jobs where we don't have people that are qualified enough to fill those jobs. And we've got millions of un underemployed people, folks that could do those jobs technically, but are now telemarketers or whatever. Right. I think we should be training a million people a year on the high, the more high tech jobs and, and solving that mismatch. Mm -hmm. um, it seems obvious the result there would be more incomes. And if that's the middle class, and if the middle class had our income, they can start investing in real estate and stocks and building their own net worth. Do you think that, um, let's say, the, the, the elites, the, the people who are making most of the money that we described earlier, um, do you think that they have an interest in, uh, in shrinking the middle class? That is, is that income gap going to mean more money for the elites, less money for the people? for the have-nots, as it were, uh, because there seems to be a lot of what's happened, particularly in, in, the, in the aftermath of COVID. Um, a lot of the economic policies seem to harm the middle class, the working class the most. Is, is there any sense to that, or am I off, the, am I off track? You know, I, would, I, would, I think you're on to something, but I would characterize it somewhat differently. I think folks that are, have accumulated wealth are interested in continuing to accumulate wealth. Right. I don't think, and I know a lot of these folks, I have, you know, there, some of them are my friends, some of them are my close friends. I don't ever come across the idea that they're doing this at the expense of someone else. Right. It's not a I win, you lose kind that's, of a thought. That's sort of Marxist thinking, isn't it? Like sort of that's class conflict. Yeah. Thinking. Yeah, But I, I can guarantee you these guys are completely focused on how to increase their own wealth. And that includes a lot of things, not the least of which is tax policy that's more favorable to them. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's all of the above. And, they're, and they're, not, they're interested in that for their own benefit, not because they're trying to do harm to any other mm -hmm. sector. So it's possible that, let's say, more responsible uh, debt policy and debt management might be the, let's say, the invisible hand 
that that could improve uh, things for everyone, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. So so um, I want to go through. We're come to the part of the show here where uh, uh, we want to wrap up and make sure that uh, we we covered all of these topics. And um, this is part of the show that uh, we call the reading list. Um, as you can probably imagine, or or you probably guessed, Richard. We've uh, featured your books on the show today. Uh, the most recent one is The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without a Debt Crisis. This is your most recent work. We've also talked about the case for Debt Jubilee, which is the book that you wrote uh, just prior to that, sort of uh, in the aftermath of, of COVID. And then we've also talked about two more, A Brief History of Doom and The Next Economic Disaster. Uh, those aren't all of your books. There, there are others. Are there any that, um, that we haven't mentioned that you, that you think are of note and that are relevant to our discussion? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for mentioning my books. I'm really grateful to you. I think the one you didn't mention is the, the illustrated business history of the United right. States that, you know, I think for folks that like history, this is a really, I think, you know, fun, I would call it fun. It's <laughs> a book that takes you through, you know, all the many inspiring, innovative things that business can do. So, but anybody reads any of my books, I'm I'm grateful and beholden to them. Well, I've only I've only gotten through three of them. Uh, I'm, I'm I still have some work to do, but I plan to get to all of them eventually. Um, are there any uh, other works of of literature or, or economists uh, that um, that you think would be valuable to people other than your own work uh, that perhaps have inspired you or are that you think are are very relevant to the discussion that we've had today and perhaps give people a greater understanding of some of the topics that we've been talking about? Well, if you're a real geek like <laughs> I am. There are a few. I'm actually writing a biography now of America's very first banker. Really? Our first bank opened in 1781. And this was a very fertile time in economic history because you had 13 colonies that were, in essence, 13 separate economies. And they were printing money and they were doing land banks and they were experimenting. And then we obviously had the Alexander Hamilton situation and so forth and so on. So it's an incredibly fertile period. And, you know, and I, and by the way, this book is involved far more research than I ever figured, but that it'll come out here in the next couple of years. But if you're a real geek, there's a few books that tell you about this. One of them is called American public finance, 1700 to 1815. And, more was going on there than economists today even know of. And much of it can either validate or contradict some of the theories that folks are wrestling with today. So I'm surprised to learn that uh, there weren't any uh, domestic banks in the 13 colonies. You mean to say that prior to 1781, all the banks in the 13 colonies were all British banks? I'll go further than that. Remember, it was a mercantile economy. Right. And Brit, Britain didn't allow the U.S. to have banks. That mm. was, and so folks like Thomas Jefferson had to borrow from British banks overseas. 
And that's one of the areas in which a lot of resentment built up. There was a major financial calamity in 1772 that caused lenders to shut down their loans to folks like Jefferson and others and created enormous resentment. But we weren't allowed to have banks. We weren't allowed to have manufacturing. And we weren't allowed to buy land west of the Appalachians. (laughs) Those were three, you know, we talked about taxation without representation. Those were the three other big reasons that Americans were highly resentful of the U.S. or the Britain Mm -hmm. and kind of just wanted to get rid of them. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, Richard, um, this has been a very wide ranging and really interesting discussion. I'm very grateful for your books. Uh, I enjoyed them immensely. And uh, I know that uh, people, other people, our viewers and listeners will enjoy them too. So I encourage them to to check them out. They're available on, on Amazon. Uh, I was able to listen to two of them as audiobooks, uh, which is great. I was just driving in my car and I was able to listen to, to a couple of Richard's books. Um, th- this has been a real blessing having you with us today. We've learned a great deal. I just want to thank you, Richard, so much for being with us uh, and for you know sharing some of your knowledge about, about debt. I think this is going to be very, very illuminating for, for those, uh, those people who are part of our, our Grey Matter community. I'm so grateful to you for having me.